0: Good morning. How are you? That's not supposed to be asked in a worship service, right? Um, This morning we are not going to be studying what I had Heidi put in the bulletin. We're going to study fellowship. And fellowship is a word that is very much misunderstood. We're going to be reading from uh, Acts chapter 2. Um, We're going to start with verse 36, which actually... um, Do you have any of... You don't have Acts 2 there. We had it in the first service. Okay, okay. You can go ahead and put that up, please. Um, And by the way, those of you that think that overheads are bad, have you ever realized that all an overhead is is uh, publishing by light instead of by ink? It's just publishing, and publishing sounds pretty respectable, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so that was you didn't you don't have to pay me for that one. Um, if you guys would open up, please. To uh, I think we're going to start with verse thirty six, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. I'm going to make some comments about this as we as we go along, and then some application, and this will be our. Our sermon for for the Lord's Day. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Um, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3000 souls. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I made fun of my wife a week and a half ago because uh, she started reading a book and I said, you like reading about death? I had made a decision a number of years ago, that I would not read that book. I was well aware of the book. I knew it would be very interesting, but I also knew that if I read it, that I would be reading about death. Uh, The name of the book is Into Thin Air. Many of you have read it in a high school literature class, and and so I made fun of her, and she read it, and then I started reading it. (laughs) And if I were to tell you uh, where you could find a description that is perfectly opposite what I just read to you, that might be the best place to go. Now, yes, in, in some sense, it's, those of you that don't know, it's the story of, I think, 1997 of a bunch of uh, climbers going up Everest. And it was the year that everybody died. I don't remember how many. Does anybody remember offhand how many? Well, eight in just that group, but there were other people that died also. Um, And it is a horribly disgusting book. Because what it shows is individual egotism and money going after a goal of saying that you summited Everest and absolutely destroying anything in your path. Now, How many of you have read the book? Oh my, I thought a bunch of you would have read it. Uh, There's a writer for Outside Magazine that writes it. And uh, well, last night, I'm reading a couple chapters, and one of the chapters... Uh, describes a certain group uh, going up, not the normal South coal side, but another side of the mountain, As they're going up the mountain. Um, they come upon two or three uh, people who are dying. They're without oxygen. They've run out of oxygen. Um, they're freezing. They have no shelter. They have no water. All right. And they look at them and they go on. Now, why did they go on? If you, had, if you were walking along and right here were two or three people dying, needing oxygen, needing care, what would make you pass them by? Well, what would make you to do it is an absolute commitment to summiting Everest. And so these guys that passed them by went to the top. Ironically, they didn't make it. Then they turned around and came down, and again they were there, and what do you think they did? They passed them by. Now why? Sometimes uh, that happens and it's the right thing to do because you can't save your own life if you stop to help. But even so, if you were to stop to help and you died in the process, you know, you read these stories about these people that jump into the lake to save somebody who's drowning and they drown too. You never think, what a fool. You think, well, God bless them. You know, too bad they didn't have life saving, didn't know to knock them out before they tried to help. (laughs) What would cause these people to do it? Well, it's the very opposite of this beautiful picture you have of the thing that is called in Scripture variously, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the household of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. These are all names that are used for the church. And nothing could be more contrary to this picture of these people passing them as they go up, passing them again as they go down. One of the men was interviewed just shortly after he got back down to uh, the top camp. They have a variety of camps that they hit on their way up to acclimate themselves to the to the, uh to the oxygen level and to the, to the, uh, to the altitude. And uh, one of them was asked, uh, so, you know, why didn't you stop and help? And he said, you know, up there, you, you don't have the luxury of morals. So, in other words, morals are things that we have when we're, what, fat and rich? And then you can have morals. Is that the way it works? No. You don't have the luxury of morals when you're on top of Everest. Now, whether or not I or you would have passed them by is a question that all of us should ask ourselves. Um, But certainly we can all agree that if Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan who stopped and the preacher didn't stop and the presbytery member didn't stop and the priest didn't stop, but the Samaritan did. We recognize that on top of Everest that year when time after time, people chose to be able to get to the top of Everest and say they had climbed it instead of helping those who were dying right in front of them. And when asked about it afterwards, they said, you don't have the luxury up there of ethics, of morality, of right and wrong. It's not something that you can deal with up there. Now, if you look at the text... You'll see the very opposite of this. Um, let me set the scene. You know that this is the day of Pentecost. It's in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem is filled with uh, with uh, people there to celebrate the holy day, and so they're from all over the Roman Empire. Um, and Peter is preaching the first sermon since Jesus ascended into heaven. He's Publicly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there were Mongolians there. No, maybe not really. Uh, but every nation, every nationality, every ethnic group was there. And they all heard in their own tongues. All right? And Peter is preaching. Now, what had just happened? Well, uh, that city had crucified Jesus. You say, well, not the city. And I say, well, yeah, yeah, the city. It was popular acclamation that crucified Christ. They all cried out, crucify him. And so Peter stands up and he proclaims that this Jesus that they crucified is the Messiah, He is our sacrifice for our sins and that we are to place our faith in Him. And if you look at the very end, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him, this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Now, you can imagine, if you as a city have crucified a man, all right, and he says this one is both Lord and Christ, and he ends saying this one that you crucified, your hearts would be convicted and you would do what they did. It says, when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now that's the true preaching of the Gospel. If you have been at a place where evangelism has been done, you've gone to a crusade, you've gone to promise keepers, you've watched a television station, and it hasn't caused you to fear God. It's not evangelism. It's not Christianity. It's Americanism. It's American civic religion. Always the preaching of the gospel calls you to say in the presence of a holy God, what should I do? And this is the response of everyone. They're not bopping around saying, hey, this is fun. They're saying, oh my God, what am I to do? And what's the response? Well, look at what he says. Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized. Now, they just got done saying, What are we to do? And he says again, Repent. So again, if the Gospel is preached to you in such a way that you do not have to confess that you are a sinner without hope before a holy God, you have never heard the Gospel. All right. Repent and be baptized. And so what we see here is in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And that's the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed to them and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's evangelism. All right. You repent. You're struck with the holiness of God. You place your faith in Jesus Christ and say, He is my righteousness before a holy God, this one who was crucified. You then receive the Holy Spirit, you're baptized out of obedience, and then what happens? What happens, if you look, is the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God, will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now that's where we see appearing what we're going to now study. What happens when you believe? What happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a Christian? What happens? Well, look at what he says, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, do you recognize that we live in a perverse generation? My wife doesn't like me to say this, but any idiot knows that. <laughs> I mean, perversity? I mean, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, One of the problems with those of you who are younger is you've never known anything different. And so uh, you have become acclimated, not to the heights of Everest, but rather to the perversity of your generation. And... um, Because we live in a youth worshipping culture, somebody who is older who tells you your generation is perverse makes you think of a Monty Python skit. Yeah, when I was a young boy, I had to live down in the sewer, and and you just automatically dismiss whatever anybody says to you because, well, another older person, you know, telling how when I was a child, well, let me tell you, when I was a child, the things you watch Every day of your life, everybody knew was pornography. All right? Everybody knew that's what it was. The words that are used in the songs you sing, you didn't even read them. The New Yorker did not have short stories, erotic short stories about same sex. intercourse it's inconceivable Um, and you know I could go on and on and on and my point is what my point is you live in a perverse generation it's perverse you did not have the option of hooking up over the internet within 15 minutes Now, what was the Roman Empire like? It was just like this. They didn't have the Internet, but aside from that, they were just as sophisticated in their perversity as we are. It was nothing different. People traveled. There were roads. You could go far away from your family and sin any way you wanted. And this was what the Roman Empire was. And so... With many other words, with many words, you say, okay, okay, we get the point. Well, you know, the Bible says that Peter, with many, many words, with many words, kept urging them, what? Save yourselves from this perverse generation. Now, has what I said qualified for many words? I haven't begun to talk about it. I mean, you can bet your booties that back then when Peter was speaking, his many words drowned my many words. With many words, he kept saying, what? Save yourselves from this perverse generation. Now, ask yourself the question, how do you save yourself from a perverse generation? Well, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You look at your sin and you don't don't use uh, Amos... What are those words? (laughs) You don't use euphemisms or... You don't remember. Circumlocutions. In other words, you don't talk about it in a way that lies. You don't try to name it such, you know, like sexual preference. There's no sexual preference there's biological marking God put on you in the womb. That's it. <laughs> you're man, you're woman. Your body might have some mistakes and you're still man or woman. You understand? We don't use circumlocutions and euphemisms. We don't lie about our sin. We recognize it and that's what we repent of. All right? We don't repent of having uh been, been, been made a little bit differently by God and we embrace our, our sexual preference. You see, this is part of the perversity. Language is always the way that you make people more perverse. You know, we, have, we lie to each other, alright? Uh, I say, my heart is adulterous. You say, your heart is sodomite. Somebody else says, my heart is gossip. Another person says, my heart is greed. And we look at each other and say, I love you. (laughs) Because if God loved me and offers the blood of Christ, then I love you. And see, when we save ourselves from this perverse generation. We confess who we are before God. We see the holiness of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is our righteousness. And then what happens? Save yourselves from this perverse generation. We're baptized. And then what happens? What happens? Come on. What happens is open your Bibles and you'll see. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They're baptized and added. All right, now, some of you don't like what I'm going to say because you're more American than you are Christian. And this is where those of you from other nations don't have to worry because you haven't been corrupted by American political ideology. But American political ideology thrives on individualism. The Marlboro Man? There aren't Marlboro Men. There's a man. And he smokes alone. And he rides alone. He sleeps alone. He doesn't need a woman, and he doesn't need other men. Occasionally you'll see him with other men, but he is the man. And, you know, really, even though a football team is a team, what everybody's waiting for is one person on the team to step out from the rest and show himself to be a god. Right? In other words, we're individualistic. Completely individualistic. We think it's weakness that causes a man to talk to his wife. You have to do it occasionally if you want the favors she can give you. But otherwise, you're a man. And so consequently, Americans are deeply resistant to being added to any number except possibly all the usurpers to the throne, all the counterfeits that Satan throws at us. Like, for instance, uh, the Iron Pit, where you go and join other men to build your body, and there you have fellowship around building your body. Or where you go to a tailgating party before an IU football game, because, after all, if there's a place where a man will stop being a man and become men, It's in the worship of sports. And so for many Christians in this community who claim the name of Christ, the high point of this week was yesterday's game where they gathered together with other people to watch a football game. And they're much more excited about that. Much, much, much more excited about that than they were gathering together with Christians today to worship Jesus Christ. But they say they're Christians. Now, where do you think their heart is? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't you think that probably the majority of people in this community who were at the IU football game yesterday and are in a Christian church today spent more money on the game and everything surrounding it yesterday than they put in the offering plate today? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Satan is always creating counterfeits for the things that God desires to give us. Satan gives you adultery instead of fidelity to your wife. Satan gives you a football game instead of corporate worship and small groups where you love each other. They're baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Are we against megachurches? We're not one. Are we against them? No, we're not against megachurches. If by that you mean 3,000 people, no. 3,000 were added to their number that day. But you know what we are against? We're against megachurches that grow by telling people that they'll never embarrass them by asking them to be an individual with other individuals praying for each other. Many megachurches have built themselves by saying to people, you can be completely anonymous here, and that's cool. We understand. We're here to serve your needs. No, you're here to massage their egos. And so that megachurch is unbiblical. There can be 3,000 people, but what are those 3,000 people doing? That's the question. What are they doing here? Look. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to, one, the apostles' teaching, two, fellowship, three, the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, this is the teaching of the apostles, because what I'm doing is I'm opening to you the things written down by the apostles that proclaim Jesus Christ to you. And it's always been the habit from the day of Pentecost on for a man, not a woman, to get up and to preach the Gospel to you. That's the teaching of the apostles. Where did they get their teaching from? They got their teaching from the Lord who appointed the twelve apostles. And they wrote it down. Apostolic authorship is the criteria of canonicity. All right, it's what goes in the Bible, and today I'm just doing a boringly same thing. Somebody recently was saying to me about what I teach about manhood and womanhood. You know, do you know how? Do you know you're in danger because of your rhetoric? And and do you realize how weird you are? Uh, I had a, a a religion editor from the Minneapolis Star Tribune uh, say to me one time. D- do you know that some people would, would call you um, a sexist? And I'm like, you know, duh. <laughs> of course I know that. Duh. How could anybody in America not know that? Haven't we all had our morality play shoved down our mouths day after day, hour after hour? Every classroom we've ever been in, every op-ed page we've ever read, don't we all know what we're supposed to believe? And that anybody that differs with it is a sexist. We all know what we're supposed to believe about race. Anybody that disagrees is a racist. We all know what we're supposed to, to believe about homosexuality. Anybody that doesn't agree is homophobic. We all know what we're supposed to believe about redwood trees and bears and little gophers, and anybody that doesn't agree is a speciesist. I mean, duh. <laughs> we all know what we're supposed to believe. So, what did I say to her? I said, Yeah, I know everybody thinks I'm a sexist. But if I have to decide whether to have the approval of men today or to stand with everyone who's ever lived prior to today, I'd rather stand with the majority. Because 2,000 years of church history has been in loving submission to God and recognizing that God's made us men and women and has given us different callings. You can argue about some of the differences, but I'm a man, and you're what you are, and it's real obvious if you take off your clothes, and that is God's gift to you, and He says it's good. And so... When we come to Scripture and we see that it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, we always have a choice whether we're going to devote ourselves to the doctrine of Scripture. And the world has its own doctrine. And you're always making a decision whether you're going to submit to the apostles' teaching or not. And if I don't give you the apostles' teaching, you are hopeless. Because God says that He's pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to save your soul. And so, you know, that's your choice. And you say, well, you know, you're a real egotist. You know, to put yourself in such an important place. No, no, no. I am an egotist. But that's not why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I'm humble. You say, oh, yeah, it sounds real humble. But it is humble because I know what you're all thinking. I know what the you know the the the, the, uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune woman was saying. I know what people are thinking. People are thinking you're arrogant, you're rude, you're dogmatic, you're you're a male patriarch. Um, okay, duh. You know I know that's what you're thinking. But the question is, is it true or isn't it true? That's the question. And I defy you to come into my home and write off the way I live and my wife live together. I defy you to do it. You want to write me off as being a pig? A male chauvinist pig? As opposed to somebody who's devoted to the teaching of the apostles, you come in my home, you sit at our table, you watch us as a family, and then I'll listen to you. But until you've seen that, don't you dare say that I'm arrogant. No, I've got a wife who lets me be a husband. Do you understand this? And so you say, well, you know, that's real fine. You know, this is a big church. How many of us are going to get into your home? Well, last Sunday we had 35. <laughs> and if you want to come over for dinner, you may come over any time that we're there. And how many of you have dropped into our house for dinner without prior announcement? Raise your hand. Look around. Look around. Come on. So, this is a real offer. All right? Now, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I take the teaching of the apostles that is most hated today, and that's the one I force you to look at. All right? It doesn't just say that, though. It says to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, the Apostle's teaching is cerebral, pretty much. It's it's doctrine. It's what the words say. The other three, though, have this in common. They all are, to a greater or lesser degree, something that uh, creates community. All right? Prayer, you think of prayer closet, but the truth is, A lot of our prayer is communal. It's with other men. It's on our knees here as as a group. We ask each other to pray for each other. These other things tend to create relationships. Obviously, the breaking of bread creates relationships. God did not intend us to drive up alone to a fast food restaurant. You know, food is supposed to be driving us together. And Jesus told us that we were to eat together. And the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate it, is a continuation of His command. So when we break bread, it is a communal activity. And the word fellowship, teaching the apostles, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Okay? Fellowship. What's fellowship? Well, you know that it comes from the Greek word koinonia, or it is the Greek word koinonia, which comes from a root, koine, koine. Which some of you know, Koine Greek is the Greek that the New Testament is written in. Now, what does Koine mean? Where's Joshua? Okay, what does Koine mean? Huh? Common, common. Koine means common. Come here, would you? All right, now, tell them the history of understanding of what the New Testament is written in. Just hold it in front of your okay. Um The New Testament is written in a kind of Greek that um, is what happened after all the Greek dialects merged together. And it's, um, it was a, a Greek that was easier for the common people to understand. And... Back in the 1800s, what did people think about the Greek of the New Testament? Uh, Some thought it was um, a divinely given language. What was it called back then? I don't know. It was called. It was called ecclesiastical. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what (laughs) they thought. What he said. And then what? What did they discover about it? Say it again. They discovered it was just the um, the Greek that was spoken and and used for writing by people who were spread throughout the empire, not just in Greece. Okay, thank you. Now, that's the root of the word koinonia. In other words, people used to think because they they saw the highbrow language, you know, the language of the university, the language of Plato and Socrates, and it didn't really compare to the language that the New Testament was written in. And so they thought, well, God gave a special language, you know, a special dialect, a special version of Greek for His Bible. And it's exalted. And so they called it Ecclesiastical Greek. Well, then, when they began to discover inscriptions and and the language of, you know, the vendor out in front of the bank, okay, they realized that the language of Scripture was the vulgar tongue. It was the, 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 the way that the Hicks spoke Greek. Okay? That's the language God chose for His New Testament. And it's called Koine Greek now. Koine. And koinonia is the word for fellowship, and koine is the word for Greek that's vulgar. In other words, When the Bible says they were devoted to the fellowship, what it's saying is they were devoted to their common grunt life. Now, what do we think of fellowship? Well, we think fellowship is something that uh, widows do uh, when they get together in their missionary circle, you know, where they share prayer requests and gossip a little and then pray. And that that's fellowship, but that's not fellowship. Fellowship is the common life of the people of God. And the Bible says they were devoted to the fellowship. Now watch this. Save yourselves from this perverse generation. They place their faith in Christ. They're baptized. They die to their old life and arise to their new life. And then, and then what? They're all alone. Is that true? It's not true. It's what Satan will tell you. But it's not true. When you become a Christian, you are given brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that are superior to any blood relations you've ever had. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? I become your brother. Now, you might not like me. But there are many other men here who can be your brother. So if I'm too loud and pushy, we have some that are very soft. Wayne Hook is a good candidate. And if you don't like Wayne because he's not big enough, you'd like a soft big man, then there's Glenn over here. If you prefer older women because you feel safe with them, we have a number of them. If you like younger women, we have them. If you're looking for a spouse... where would you go except the body of Christ? And why would you go to a church that has a bunch of hot chicks who don't believe in the church being a place of intimacy and humility? Satan will tell you that the perverse generation is your true home and your true family and that you need to hold on to that And that you have your family and that family is the final commitment of your life. And you know what happens to people who hold on to their family because that's their final commitment in life? As they squeeze it, they destroy it. How many people I have known in my lifetime as a pastor who have had their family as their idol and their idolatry has destroyed their marriage and their children? The Bible says that Peter said, Save yourself from this perverse generation. It says, 3,000 believed and were added to their number. All right, you see the progression. What is it? It's intimacy, it's community, it's commonality, it's communion. Save yourself from this perverse generation, the competing body of death. You know, those that read Us Magazine and watch. Entertainment channel. And what's that show where they do the design thing and they've got all the sodomites? No, no, there's a better one now. Is it called Runway? Is it what? Project Runway. You know, that's, that's the fellowship of the world, the perverse generation, and then the body of Christ, where you're just one more sinner, but you're loved You have brothers and sisters that will continue in heaven. Remember, in heaven there will be neither marriage nor the giving in marriage. Okay? Where this bond is eternal. Because it's a bond made by God who gives you new life in Jesus Christ. Satan says, oh no, hold on to the perverse generation. Hold on to your children. Hold on. Grab them because it's all you have. Three thousand were added to their number. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And then what happens? Well, you know the rest of the story, don't you? They began selling whatever they had and giving to each one as he had needs. Well, now that's, you know, we think Karl Marx, you know. We think, oh, communism. You know, I'm not going to sell what I have. You know? Listen, If you believe in Jesus Christ and you devote yourself to eating with each other and to going to each other's home, you won't notice when you sell your things and when you give it to other Christians, when you give them cars. Did you notice when you gave Joseph and Heidi that car? You really didn't. Linda gave Joseph and Heidi a car. It's total now, by the way. (laughs) but I mean it was the sweetest thing in the world Linda just said who needs a car and it was really quite self forgetful and we've seen that kind of thing in this church over and over and over again I get back from Africa I have a new deck and you say well what's in common here is the pastor's family can I get related (laughs) No, it happens all over the church. And you know why it happens? It doesn't happen because we're communists. It happens because we love each other and so you become forgetful about your money, you know? So how forgetful are you about your money? <laughs> if you're not forgetful about your money, it's because you don't know the meaning of Christian community. Because once you love each other, it's like the, we used to say in high school all the time, I want you to know that what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. And we always changed it in high school, to I want you to know that what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. <laughs> so, brothers and sisters, um, are you devoted to fellowship? First of all, do you believe? And have you made the family of God your family? Or Are you still clinging to the perverse generation? Are you a Christian? Have you been marked by baptism? Have you died to the perverse generation and been risen to the body of Christ? Don't let Satan seduce you with things that will die. Become a part of the body of Christ, which will live forever and which is holy because of Christ's blood. Number two, if you're a believer, if you've been baptized, then the question is, what expression does this commonality, this community, this uh, intimacy have in your life? Are you the Marlboro Man? You know, are you the Rosie O'Donnell? You know, big mouth that walks all over everybody. Who are you? At the beginning of Calvin's Institutes, he says true religion consists of knowing yourself and knowing God. And he's not saying it doesn't consist of community. But he's saying it does consist of knowing yourself. And as I look around and I look at you, some of you are absolutely resistant to Christian community. And almost always the reason you're resistant, for instance, to being in a small group is because you do not believe that God loves you. That's the reason. You say, oh, no, 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 I believe God loves me. No, you don't. You say, well, how could you say that? And I say, because you don't believe that other believers love you. And you will not show them your sin. Well, what's that about? Well, it's very clear. You don't believe God loves you. A sinner. And so you have to cut yourself off from other Christians and live all alone so that you protect your own identity of sinfulness because you can't believe that God would love you and therefore you can't believe that any Christian could love you. We always relate to each other according to what we believe about a relationship with God. That's how we do it. And so if you're a Marlboro man, if you're somebody that doesn't believe in small groups, I say to you... You look at this text. You look at what God said. He said, save yourself from this perverse generation. They were added to their number. They were baptized. They began to eat in one another's homes. They began to sell their property and give to anyone as he had need. They had community. That's what they had. And they were sinners and they were every bit as bad as you are. And I am. They had the same sins. The exact same ones. And that's your choice. That is biblical evangelism. That is the biblical church. I want to close by reading a quote from George Whitfield. Are you in a small group? If you're not, you need to be. Because this is not that fellowship. This is the teaching of the apostles and corporate worship. There is fellowship that goes on here. That, this is not that fellowship. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, Said this. He said, brothers and sisters, let us plainly and freely tell each other what God has done for our souls to accomplish this. You would do well to follow what others have done and to form yourselves into little companies or groups of four or five people or we at our house last Sunday night, 35 <laughs> and meet once a week to tell each other what is in your hearts. I couldn't tell anybody what's in my heart. It's dirty. Well, you know, most mornings you get up, what do you do? You go into the shower and wash, don't you? And if you're going into the bathroom to take a shower, is everybody in the house trembling and trying to hide their faces and avert themselves from what you're doing? No, they generally think that it will be good for the community life that you take a shower and that you must be dirty. Dirty. And that's the way we need to look at the sins that entangle us as Christians. We need to understand that we need cleansing. And God cleanses us, but God uses the church to do it. And so he says, meet once a week to tell each other what is in your hearts. And there are many good things in our hearts so that you can pray for and comfort each other as each of you has a need. No one except one who has experienced this can tell the unspeakable advantages of such a union and communion of souls think of communism's 50 to 100 million people killed in the utopianism of community and here we have the real thing i don't think he finishes that anyone who really loves his own soul and his brothers as himself will be shy of opening his heart so that he may have their advice their reproof, their admonition, and their prayers as occasions require. A sincere person will count this time as one of the greatest blessings. Isn't that beautiful? Did you know in the New Testament that there's a command? And, and the command is this. The command is greet one another with a holy kiss. But we don't do that. We're Americans. Now, Mike, I won't do it to you. How about you? Stand up. Are you a jock? No. Yeah, I think he is. Isn't he? He is. You see, that's not so bad. And that's how they greeted themselves. Thank you. I like kisses. That's how they greeted themselves in the early church. You say, well, that's cultural. I say, are you sure? You're absolutely sure that's cultural? If I were to ask, a number of you have never been kissed by your father. Those of you who are men. You see, the church is a place of intimacy. Why? Because under the cross, the ground is level. And under the cross, we have been given brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And that heals us. And the discipline of loving each other in our sin, in our pride, in our obstinacy, in our lust, that discipline God uses to prepare us for heaven. And it's a beautiful thing. So, welcome to the family. We do actually love each other here. We don't fight. We do argue, (laughs) but we don't fight. And uh, we're happy that you're here because God has given us this good gift and we think everybody should have this instead of the perverse generation that is its counterfeit. Now, one of the songs we love to sing in this church is called The God of Abram Praise. Maybe it's just because I love the song. And the reason I love it, if you could put the words up there, please. If you look at the words, the God of Abram prays. I think we have too much modern conceit in this perverse generation. We think the only thing that matters is now. And if we don't get news for a day, we feel like we're out of touch. I think we need to go back, way back. And I like to go back to Abram. The God of Abram prays. In other words, God exists. And we are the the grass of the field, the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow. But the God of Abram is eternal. The God of Abram prays who reigns enthroned above. Ancient of everlasting. In other words, very old of eternity into the future. Ancient of everlasting days and God of love. Jehovah great I am by earth and heaven confessed. I bow and bless the sacred name forever blessed. And as we sing this, um, what we're doing is we're remembering how God called Abram out himself uh, to be a separated people. And uh, we today in the church and in heaven will be uh, what God called Abram to be. Again, it's this theme of community and God making a family and giving us a future and a hope. Let's stand and let's sing this hymn, this great hymn. Curtis, would you start us, please?